Hi there, I'm Ken Krause, and I'm one of the voices of our Feisty Little Snap Sessions podcast. Together with interviewer, writer, and commentator Doug Nunn and techmeister Marshall Brown, we produce the mix of politics, comedy, and interviews that is Snap Sessions. Maintaining the good ship SS Snap Sessions... Isn't free. Expenses include our website hosting, Zoom Pro account, transcription services for interviews, and other things that keep our podcasts snapping. If you enjoy our quirky show, we'd like to ask you to become one of our Snap supporters. We've even added some membership levels to make it easier for you to join our Snap family through our Patreon link at patreon.com forward slash snap sessions. To help us produce our monthly antidote to the media madness, you can join our support team as a baby snapper for just $1 a month. For only $3 a month, you can become a snip snapper. We also have our existing levels of support through Patreon with the Mighty Mini Snapper at $5 a month, the Simple Snapper at $10 a month, the Beefy Big Snapper at $20 a month, and for $35 a month, you can become an exalted Snappus Maximus. And for those of you wishing to make a one-time gift to our Snappy Cause, we now have a Buy Me a Coffee account at buymeacoffee.com forward slash snap sessions. You can contribute as much as you are able to whenever you can. All our Snap supporters will receive credit on our website, thesnapsessions.com. For those who contribute at the upper levels, there are special rewards, such as credit on the podcast, early access to the episodes, unedited transcripts of the interviews, access to special music, and more surprises. Links to all support levels are on our website at thesnapsessions.com. And please know that we appreciate any support you can give. And we appreciate you listening to our Snaptastic offerings. We are grateful to you as listeners and hope you will help us keep making Snap Sessions a part of your auditory input. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by voiceover colossus Ken Krause, by our behind-the-scenes techmeister Marshall Brown, and by our artist-activist of the show, video editor Sax Eno. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappus Maximus contributors, Ron Hooksprung and Rick and Henny Newman. And to our supportive snappers, Ellen Athens, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Kathy White, Domini Jowers and John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. Other contributors include Steve Weingarten and Jerry Shook. These supporters help keep Snap Sessions snapping. Join the Snap Sessions family. Critical race theory, 
and the 1619 Project. Come on, Ellis! Drive them, you! Get that gun! Move it on, huh? Critical race theory is being taught in our schools. Um, it, critical race theory is bunk. Critical race theory is a lie. From the first word to the last, from start to finish. Racist critical race theory. Critical race theory. Critical race theory in the schools and the wokeness. Let me tell you right now, critical race theory is bigoted, it is a lie, and it is every bit as racist as the Klansmen in white sheets. The Western culture and values that brought forth Christianity in the founding documents are being called evil and racist. I am not co-parenting with the government. It is not your job to force these ideas onto my child. The narrative in this country is that we're all inherently racist and I'm about sick of it. It's a Marxist ideology and we all know it. All of these lessons have the intent to make our children feel disgust towards our nation. This country isn't even a, a, a racist country. We elected Obama for two terms. Just what is critical race theory? If you believe these hysterical cawing voices, <laughs> you'd think it was the end of the world. Instead, let's listen to an accurate definition from Kimberlé Crenshaw, a pioneering scholar and writer on critical race theory and civil rights, and a distinguished professor of law at both Columbia and UCLA law schools. Critical race theory just says, let's pay attention to what has happened in this country and how what has happened in this country is continuing to create differential outcomes so we can become that country that we say we are. So critical theory is not anti-patriotic. In fact, it is more patriotic than those who are opposed to it because we believe in the 13th and the 14th and the 15th Amendment. We believe in the promises of equality and we know we can't get there if we can't confront and talk honestly about inequality. Another related target of right-wing ire has been the book The 1619 Project, an analysis of American history from an African-American perspective. Edited by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and historian Nicole Hannah-Jones, this epic work of history includes 18 thought-provoking essays and 36 poems and reflective works of fiction. I found it an amazing history book. It was on the 400th anniversary of the first enslaved Africans landing in Colonia, Virginia, in 1619, that The New York Times Magazine launched the 1619 Project as a special issue in 2019. It's now been expanded as an anthology of 18 essays, along with poems and short stories that examine the legacy of slavery, dedicated to the more than 30 million descendants of American slavery. Many argue the 1619 Project has changed how history is taught and discussed in the United States. To quote the Washington Post, You've probably heard of it by now. The 1619 Project has emerged as a watchword for our era. A hashtag, a talking point, a journalism case study, a scholarly mission. It is the subject of dueling academic screeds, Fox News segments, publishers' bidding wars, and an upcoming series of Oprah-produced films. It is a Trump rally riff that reliably triggers an electric round of jeers. Jeers and a lot of racist nitpicking. It is apparently very difficult for the powers that be to accept this groundbreaking project. 
it originally started as a broadsheet section of the New York Times and now includes a podcast series and a free school curriculum. Hundreds of thousands of copies were shipped to libraries and museums nationwide. The book's scholarly essays range across the multiple legacies of slavery, from the economic legacy to the history of punishment and incarceration to the divergent history of health care. But there were a few historical errors, and these gave some American historians an opening to attack. Nicole Hannah-Jones had asserted that one of the primary reasons the colonists decided to declare their independence from Britain was because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery at a time when Britain had grown deeply conflicted over its role in the barbaric institution. Apparently, she should have said some of the colonists, not all of the colonists. Here's a rant from conservative pundit George Will. What's wrong with the 1619 Project is that it is factually preposterous. The essence of the story is that Americans fought the American Revolution because Lord Dunsmore said that slaves uh, fighting on the British side would be emancipated. Well, He said that, I think it was November 1775, after Lexington and Concord, after the Boston Tea Party, after the Boston Massacre, after the Stamp Act. The the war was up and running under the command after George Washington had been put in charge of the troops. So it is factually illiterate to say this. And that is why, to use your term, it's not a good faith kind of argument. It's, it's an argument of it's, it's tendentious, meretricious, and propagandistic. Perhaps it's tendentious, meretricious, and propagandistic to George Will, but to me, this book is a rich source of fresh knowledge and perspectives. I was a history major at UC Berkeley from 1970 to 75, started to study for a master's in history at Münster Universität in Germany, and taught high school history for years. For me, the 1619 Project has been revelatory. First off, let's follow Nicole Hannah-Jones's lead and call plantations what they actually were, forced labor camps. I learned this and much more from the 1619 Project, starting with a 2017 survey by the Teaching Hard History podcast. It was found that just 8% of high school seniors named slavery as the central cause of the Civil War, and less than one-third knew it took a constitutional amendment to abolish it and that the Texas Board of Education-approved curriculum standards that equated Stonewall Jackson with Frederick Douglass as examples of the importance of effective leadership in a constitutional republic. Let's remember that Stonewall Jackson was a traitorous rebel general for the Confederacy, and Frederick Douglass was a great abolitionist who said, "...the story of the master never wanted for narrators." Our part has been to tell the story of the slave. Did you know that while not all colonists were fighting to protect slavery as one of their main reasons for rebelling against Britain, that from the beginning... One of the primary reasons some of the colonists decided to declare their independence from Britain was indeed because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery. 
And from the beginning, at the Constitutional Convention, the Deep South was intent on strengthening the slaveholders' power and protecting the institution of slavery. The other delegates were motivated by a variety of moral, economic, and philosophical reasons. Southerners fought for and won various provisions that all but ensured that majoritarian rule over the South would be impossible. With the infamous three-fifths clause in the Constitution, Southerners wanted their human property to count toward congressional representation, but not against their tax bills. This ongoing asymmetry allowed the dream of the USA to be held hostage to the tyrannical aims of the enslavers. As famed dictionary writer Samuel Johnson noted, how is it that we hear the loudest yelps for liberty among the drivers of Negroes? Did you know that cotton? was to the 19th century what oil was to the 20th, one of the most valuable and widely traded commodities in the world. If the Confederacy had been a separate nation when the Civil War began, it would have ranked among the richest in the world. The monetary value of the enslaved population in 1860 was equal to about seven times the value of all the currency in circulation in the country three times the value of the entire livestock population, 12 times the value of the cotton crop, and 48 times the total expenditure of the U.S. government that year. These are all realities I learned from the 1619 Project. Did you know that right after the Civil War, the Union established the Freedmen's Bureau? Land seized from plantation owners could be handed over to the formerly enslaved. Slaves simply asked for land to work until they could earn enough money to purchase it. In 1865, General Sherman issued Special Field Order 15, providing for the distribution of hundreds of thousands of acres of former Confederate land in 40-acre tracts to newly freed people along coastal South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. Some 40,000 freed people staked their claim to 400,000 acres of Sherman land in a region that had spawned one of the wealthiest segments of the planter class. Sherman's troops began reallocating hundreds of thousands of acres of white-owned land for settlement by black families in 40-acre plots. Hence the famous phrase, 40 acres and a mule. <laughs> Redistribution of land could have effectively broken the back of the traitorous southern aristocracy. But to this day, the only Americans who have ever received government restitution for slavery were white enslavers, whom the federal government compensated after the Civil War for their loss of human property. Sherman's act of land redistribution was later overruled by President Andrew Johnson, who said, This is a country for white men, and by God, as long as I am president, it shall be a country for white men. With the advent of emancipation, blacks became the only race in the U.S. ever to start out as an entire people with close to zero capital. But did you know that my white German peasant great-grandparents benefited tremendously by government generosity and largesse? Even as the federal government decided that black people were undeserving of any restitution, it's all there, black and white, clear as crystal. You get 
Nothing! It was bestowing millions of acres in the West on white Americans under the Homestead Act, while also enticing white foreigners to immigrate with the offer of free land. If you want it, here it is. Come and get it. From 1868 to 1934, the government gave away 246 million acres in 160-acre tracts, nearly 10% of all the land in the nation, to more than 1.5 million white families, native-born and foreign. Some 46 million American adults today, about 20% of all American adults, are descended from those homesteaders. Meanwhile, black Americans, long since removed from slavery and Jim Crow, continue to be handicapped by the economic misfortune of their ancestors. As of 2017, white households were twice as likely as black households to receive an inheritance. Thank you, Daddy. So, my family has benefited from governmental largesse, both as homesteaders and from the fact that my veteran dad, who served on the battle carriers USS Bataan and USS Ariskany in the Korean War, got much-deserved GI Bill benefits. These benefits and this boost in life were denied to black veterans. Being honest about this does make me feel guilty, but it also makes me feel lucky. Sadly, the United States government denied its generosity to those citizens it had previously allowed to be enslaved. You get nothing! As President Obama pointed out, the arc of the universe may bend toward justice, but it doesn't bend on its own. And as the 1619 Project points out, criticism of these truths veil the snowballing racism behind black people today still weathering the highest unemployment and incarceration rates and the lowest life expectancy and median wealth compared to other racial groups. Until Americans replace mythology with history, until Americans unveil and halt the progression of racism, an arc of the American universe will keep bending toward injustice. Who are the real snowflakes in American society? Who are the folks who can't really handle criticism? Here's Nicole Hannah-Jones. For one, I, I think it's quite revealing that the argument is if we teach a truer history that actually reflects uh, the facts of what happened, that that will raise children not to love their country. I think that says a great deal about what we actually think about uh, how much this country has lived up to the idea of exceptionalism. Um, if, if a patriotism has to be based on propaganda that really diminishes uh, and tries to erase from memory of the difficult parts of our past, it doesn't seem like that is a, a genuine patriotism. But I think that um, we should all, as Americans, be deeply, deeply concerned about these anti-history laws, because what they're really attempting to do is control our memory and to control our understanding of our country. And here's The Daily Show's podcast on the battle over critical race theory from a few months ago. The featured voice is producer C.J. Hunt. What I think is so funny and wild is critical race theory is like, yo, let's look at the connections between race, history, and the law. And right now, you have folks on Front Street being like, do not look at the connections. Do not teach my kid connections. So I, I think it is a, it's this moment where we're seeing whiteness in a different way, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're used to talking about white supremacy as like a privilege to not get pulled over by the police. But it is literally the privilege to be dumber, to say mm -hmm. out loud, please pass laws to make my kids' books smaller. Like 
that's that's a crazy amount of privilege to to ask lawmakers to teach your kids less. And as John Oliver points out on his rant on critical race theory, a lot of the complaints about the teaching of CRT seem to have an implicit amount of racism behind them. Here is one of the leaders of the anti-CRT push there explaining just why she is so fiercely opposed to it being taught. In Loudoun County, this is the wealthiest county in the country. There's not a lot of racism. There are silly people that say stupid things, but if you talk about it less, you're gonna notice that division less. I don't look at the person based on their skin color. I look at them based on their character. Okay, so there's a lot of obvious red flags there, from confidently asserting there's not a lot of racism here to the I don't see skin color to the you won't notice division so much if you just don't talk about it. And hey, if the problem with racism in America was only it's bumming Patty Menders out, then yeah, shutting up about it would probably solve the whole issue. But guess how long it takes for that conversation to take a real turn. I think there are, a lot of, there, there are probably plenty of people that would agree with exactly that. But just to be fair on the other side, there are people, especially young black men, for example, who would say, I would love to not be judged on the color of my skin. Do you think it's more on the color of their skin or their actions? How they're dressed, how they perceive, how they respect others. If you have a kid that's pulled over by a cop, does it really matter what color they are or is, is it the respect that they give to that police officer? Wow. When you respond to someone mentioning young black men would like to be treated better by automatically envisioning them dressed terribly and acting disrespectfully while being arrested by the police, you are telling on yourself, Patty. You are snitching on your very soul. I want honest and truthful history to be taught. So I am happy when historians acknowledge mistakes and go back and fix them. But I also want historians to give me the full truth, and that includes the perspectives of those who have been ignored up till now. I don't want any fairy tales about race or antebellum fan fiction that makes Confederate sympathizers feel good about themselves. I want to know what has gone on in this country, whether my fellow citizens are willing to be ignorant of these things or not. Bring me broader and until now ignored perspectives. Teach me the truths of the 1619 Project. Don't hide things from me because some people are in denial of the realities of American history. Don't treat me and my fellow citizens like snowflakes. Respect us with the truth. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you.
Hi, I'm here with Sax Eno. Sax is an old friend of mine and former student. I've known Sax since he was a wee tyke, literally. He came to our hit and run shows as probably a two and three year old. So that's the first time I got a chance to know you. Sax Eno, it's great to have you on Snap Sessions. Doug, thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. I'm so excited to be here. And I really, I really love the show. I was just saying how much I enjoyed listening to my old, my old classmates. Caitlin and Emily White and Jessica Marcel. It's just been, it's such a great podcast. I love the one on John Chamberlain. Thank you for asking me to do this. You grew up on the Mendocino coast. You're the son of Jan Eno, who's a musician. And also he was a coffee taster. He worked for many years for Thanksgiving coffee. And Poppy, who produced uh, musicals for years for Gloriana Opera Company, among other things. Tell us about that storied Eno youth on the Mendocino coast. Yeah, I mean, I have this weird name that I feel like you could only get if you grow up in Mendocino, which is sax. I was named after a saxophone. My parents, yeah, as you said, my dad was a musician and they were doing a gig one time. I don't know where, but they instead of getting paid, they got a meal. And on the meal ticket, they didn't know the saxophone player's name. So on, on, on his meal ticket, they just put sax. And so my parents thought that was a good name. I grew up in a water tower up Kamshikaya Road which was probably not that different than maybe some other people's upbringing in Mendo, but I really, it wasn't for me. I feel like I'm what they call, you know, indoorsy, maybe. I should be some kind of like man of the woods kind of type of person because yeah, we had a shower on a tree and had to, you know, chop wood and stuff like that, but it was never my thing. I was always so ready to get out of there and get to some place that had a bathroom. (laughs) It was fun growing up with creative parents that always supported me in every single way. They always say that I was the one going towards the creative things, the performance things, and, and that they didn't push me in that direction, but they supported me. So I, as far as I can remember, I was just, you know, following performance and doing theater. And I was a huge ham, Doug, if you remember. it was You were, you were. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, to give some extra background to the folks listening, early on, you started being involved in community theater. And I think by the time you were five, six or seven, you were on stage and you were getting regular roles in uh, community productions. And I know you did that with Gloriana Theater Company. They did musicals mostly, but you also performed with Hit and Run Theater and with Burns and Nunn. Tracy and I wrote parts for you in one of our reviews, which was called The Criminal Behavior of Launderers. And I recall you rehearsing with you and you being about seven years old. And suddenly, you know, we were rehearsing, you know, you're there late nights working with us. And it was amazing to have this sort of child savant guy who was totally into theater. How was that for you? Was that just natural? Well, The Criminal Behavior of Launderers, I loved doing that with you guys. If I'm remembering correctly... I think I was supposed to be you, but as if you had gone through the wash and shrunk. And so I was like a mini Doug Nye. And so I think, yeah, that was so much fun to do that. And, you know, I was so into it and so excited. And I think when you're that age, you just are absorbing everything. So I just learned so much from you guys from that whole period, from as far back as I can remember to graduating high school, learning so much from you guys about comedy and, and writing sketches with you guys in the, in the Mendocino High School Comedy Review, which you're still doing, I, that, right? That's so good. Yes, yes. These days, it's, it's all improv. Um, but you actually, uh, during that era, both when you were in middle school and then in the beginning of high school, we had productions where student-written skits were then produced. We helped produce them and then direct them. And you guys did complete reviews. 
And you did a, a number of, of skits. You wrote a number of skits with a variety of people, some of whom you've, you've mentioned, Jessica Marcel, Emily Jane White, Caitlin Berrigan, who've all been on this show. You were a very productive, uh, creative person as a young person. Well, I, I, I have to thank you for really kind of pushing me in the right direction because, you know, I sang that video. You gave me an award in sixth grade, the Jimmy Durante Award. And I feel like, you know, <laughs> I feel like calling it Jimmy Durante kind of like explains it in a way that makes it, you know, like kind of lets me get away with the hamminess of it. And One of the things that, that was, what was amazing to see was the number of great young performers there, performers there were who were really did a good job, not only in the show itself, but continuing along and having a lot of spirit along. It was a long process, writing over a couple of months, and then starting rehearsals, and then that was a slow process. People had to learn fast, actually. There was a lot to learn. I could salute quite a few of you here today, but I'd like to salute one person who consistently captures the showbiz spirit and the energy which lights up an audience. And um, I've named this uh, award the Jimmy Durante Award. Um, for somebody who recaptures the stage spirit of vaudeville, which is one of my favorite uh, times in showbiz history. And I'd like to present the Jimmy Durante Award to somebody who came out of the, the womb going, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I just know it's true. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, the Jimmy Durante Award goes to Saxino. Yeah, I think I wrote a sketch in, in high school about a uh, Hollywood producer or something like that. And yeah, yeah. I just remember that whole that whole process of writing sketches and about you guys giving us notes and you know finding all these ways to make it funnier and making it scenes work better. And I had such a great time. But in general, I felt like coming from Mendocino, I had such a foundation of support in the in show business, you know. And you don't realize it until you leave. But it's like, wow, I was really so supported and encouraged and was taught so much and, you know, was given every opportunity to, you know, whether it was dance or Gloriana or, you know, there's a thing called warehouse repertory for a while and, you know, Mendocino right. Company and, you know, every, all, all these different creative avenues to go that really was a foundation for whatever came next. Yeah, and which came next in a way was, I think, your interest in video editing. Mendocino High School had a very solid um, regional occupation program, which had a lot of uh, things like video editing, sound editing, etc. And uh, we had a guy at Mendo High by the name of Tom Wolski, who had worked for ABC News, as I recall. And Wolski was professional level uh, video editor who just happened to be in Mendocino and you quickly became part of his program. Tell us about uh, your time at Mendo High working in the uh, video lab. Yes, at some point in high school, I kind of transitioned from theater to video, and it was because of Tom Wolski, who, like you said, yeah, I think worked for ABC News and, you know, had come to Mendocino, I think, to retire and just kind of took this teaching gig. I learned so much from him. He taught me about how editing works, and it was like, just something you know light bulb went off and i it really clicked with me you know everything he knew about editing that was he was able to teach me you know so stuff that i still in, incorporate today you know how every cut has to be motivated and you know when when to cut oh don't you know don't cut on a blink um you know little things like that but then also what editing is and you know how to build a story and emotions and stuff like that so i, I was Really lucky to meet him and, you know, just, again, learn so much from him and, and just absorb everything. And yeah, at, at a certain point, it's kind of switched from being a theater geek to a video geek, which is, you know, still in the geek 
family, but um, <laughs> yeah, it, it was what really kind of led me in that direction after high school to try to kind of follow the, the video editing Wow. When you were getting out of high school, you uh, you were strongly interested in video tech. And I think you you always had that sort of little showbiz fairy on your shoulder whispering in your ear, like, why don't you try this? And you got you decided to apply to Chapman University down in Orange County. Now, Chapman is a sort of premier places to go for those who are interested in film, video and audio production. Uh, tell us about getting into Chapman and then tell us about your time at Chapman. I went to Chapman to study film production, and it was really pretty much the opposite of Northern California. If anyone's ever spent any time in conservative Orange County, it's very, you know, it's still in California, but it's very different than Mendocino. So I had a little bit of culture shock there. Again, I was so supported and so encouraged in Mendocino. And then you jump into a situation where, you know, it's very conservative and everyone's struggling to fit in. But yeah, I was focusing on the film production. I liked Chapman. You know, before I got to college, I never had TV before. <laughs> so I had, I had, you know, VHSs because that's how it was back in the day. But, you know, it was such a, <laughs> it was such a change, you know, all these changes happening at once. And, and um, yeah, I did focus on the editing part, but I learned so much in that time. And yeah, eventually I started to learn about what reality TV was because it was just kind of starting during that time. And so, you know, there's maybe a couple seasons of Survivor on at that point, but not not a lot. And so, um, yeah, I started to go kind of in the reality TV direction. So that was happening while you were at Chapman. Tell us about sort of the curriculum at Chapman, the kind of stuff that gets you involved in. Yeah. So you have to take film history classes. You have to take visual storytelling classes. Um, you have to take audio techniques. You have to take television classes. And, you know, in, in addition to getting all your GE and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I, I, <laughs> I needed to take the GE because I would not have ever learned those things otherwise, unless I was forced to do it. And just a little bit of that has maybe helped me along the way to make me, you know, I, I've always been focused on the creative and, you know, just having to learn something that's a little bit, what is that, left brains? <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, I never get that right either. So, yeah. Yeah, it, to, to be forced to learn something that, you know, is uh, outside the world of creativity was good. And then, you know, being able to learn about film production, film history, editing techniques. Again, I was obsessed with editing and I spent a, an enormous amount of time in, in the editing suites there. I'm just curious also, would you recommend that to, you know, people getting out of high school who, who are interested in showbiz? Would you recommend Chapman? Yeah, I would recommend Chapman University for any kid that's looking to get into film production or television production because it's close enough to LA that you have access to all the mentors from Hollywood that come to the school to teach and to give Q and A's. And even since I've left, they built a huge soundstage, and and it's just it's gotten to be a really really great school. Um, I mean, there's many great film schools, but it's a small school. Uh, it's very small, so your access to the teachers is, is really good. There's small classes, and you have a lot of creative freedom at Chapman University. And, uh, yeah, I met uh, this professor, Leonard Schrader, who's the bro brother of Paul Schrader, who wrote Taxi Driver. Yeah. He was an incredible teacher who taught me about storytelling and screenwriting. And, you know, that was really the, one of the best parts of, of my college experience is learning from, from Leonard Schrader about how story works. So Yeah. I bet that is um, – 
And, you know, considering that you've always been interested in storytelling through your time in theater and the like, your uh, obsession with movies, I mean, that gives you some sort of anchors you in storytelling, which is, of course, a key editing skill. So toward the end of your time at Chapman, you managed to get a, a an internship with Bunum Murray Productions, which is the company that's responsible for one of the first very successful reality shows, which is called The Real World, and later with Project Runway. Tell us about this internship and early days with The Real World. Yeah, so I was in college and uh, a, a producer named Peter White came to Chapman to give a, a talk about, you know, producing The Real World. And I was obsessed with The Real World at the time. I think it was season nine, New Orleans was what was airing. And so I was really excited that he was there. And he gave a talk to the class and he said, this is how reality television works. Reality TV was a pretty new term at that point. Yeah. Um, but he said, this is how reality TV works. In scripted, you write the screenplay and then you go shoot the screenplay and then you edit what you shot. In reality TV, we shoot the footage, then we go back to post-production and write the screenplay after the fact. And when he said that to me, it was like just something clicked with me and I was like, oh my God, this is what I have to do. I want to do this. That sounds amazing. I, I, you know, that's the thing that I've been looking for that I, that I would just absolutely love to do. And so like a creepy stalker, I followed him out to the parking lot and I said, <laughs> I think I may have even, I, I know I said, you know, I'm really interested in editing. Um, and he said, well, you know, I think I can get you an internship. And so you know, he gave me his card and, you know, I called him and I got an internship and, and that internship was the last semester of my, my last college year. And for my internship, I just asked, is there any way I can just shadow an editor and just sit with an editor and watch them work? Uh, and so for a whole semester, I just sat in this editor's bay, this incredible editor named Jason, Jason Rosenfield, who I don't know why he let me sit there because it must have been so annoying having a 21 year old sitting behind you. But I learned so much from him. You know, just watching him edit and, you know, watching him edit the real world and watching, you know, obviously the technical aspect of, of how to use Avid Media Composer, which is the editing software, but also, you know, how to build a scene and how to how stories work in reality TV. And yeah, you said Bina Murray created the real world. And that feels like that was probably at least one of the first reality TV shows, if not the first. And so I feel like Bina Murray has always been the best place to learn story because they invented reality TV story and you know they had a story department that would work on a script for you know again after the footage has been shot their story department would work on a script for for months for weeks let's say and the script would go through different versions and everyone in the company the higher-ups would give notes on that script and then they would give the script to the editor and then that editing process starts so it was like you know a lot happened before the editing even began and they were just so strong on story. Bina Murray was started by a woman who did soap operas and a guy who made documentaries and they kind of came together and created this new thing, you know, the real world. So they just had incredible story uh, instincts. And so, mm. I, again, I learned so much in that time, you know, in that internship. And then, you know, after college, that internship turned into a job. I, again, I have to think, not, not to give a bunch of shout outs here, but you know, a, a woman named Anna Drucker gave me that first job, that first opportunity out of college. And, you know, I owe her because nothing would have happened if, if she hadn't given me that opportunity. But yeah, it's, it's like you, you know, I think Doug, you used to tell me like, 
you just, you got to be prepared and you got to be ready because some kind of good luck hopefully comes your way and, and you got to be ready to just jump on that and, you know, turn it into something. So, yeah. Third. You know, that was, it, it was an interesting thing because as I recall, Real World um, put together a bunch of young people in, in like a roommate situation. The, I mean, the original, original ones. And so then what, what happens from that is that they have, you know, they have a bunch of sort of their relationships going different directions, um, their relationships with each other, um, how the household works over time. Those then become the, the basics of the story, right? Is it, you know, sort of take that a little further, if you don't mind. Yeah, so Real World is about putting together different people from different walks of life together in a house. And they're forced to kind of like have difficult conversations about race and about gender, about different political issues, about, you know, all kinds of things. It's really an interesting show to see, you know, different perspectives kind of coming together. It becomes the stories of their different lives and how they sort of intersect and all that. Is that, as I recall, but then how does that work, uh, a reality show like Project Runway, which you've also worked on? I mean, how does that work in a show like that? Uh, presumably, you got to meet Heidi Klum. Um, <laughs> you know what? I, I'm, I've seen her before. I saw her a few weeks ago. Or let's see. It's been a couple of months. But yeah, I saw her at an event. But no, I <laughs> uh, haven't really worked directly with her. But I, I love Project Runway. That's one show that I was you know, watching for years before I got to work on that. So I love working on that show. And yeah, there's different types of reality shows. There's a reality, you know, reality shows like The Real World, which is falls into the category of docu-series or docu-soap. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's competition shows like Survivor, Amazing Race. Um, and then there's dating shows like The Bachelor, these different kinds of reality shows. And, you know, they require different types of storytelling skills. Project Runway is formatted so you know in a certain way you you know there's a format to every episode and they I don't know how many seasons it is now it's I think it might I just worked on the season but it, it's been so many seasons and that format still works because you're plugging different people into that situation and so you have really creative designers who are put into a difficult situation Sometimes a team situation where they have to work creatively with a, another artist and watching that whole process and then having it all come together in the end in a garment and it, the garment either is a huge success or a huge failure. Uh -huh. and, you know, that that's just a really, really great format that's worked for seasons. And, and yeah, same thing with Survivor. They found an incredible format that you just plug different people into that format and it's still interesting, you know, 40 one seasons in so 41 seasons now the survivor that's amazing you know that really is when you think about it so it's probably reality shows as a genre is probably about 30 years now or something like that since they're 28 years something like that if you count yeah if you count real world which started in i believe it was 1992 but okay. reality TV really didn't get started going until about 2000 2001 you know there was a, just a couple of shows out there was survivor i think making the band was on the air maybe a few other ones but uh yeah then of course things exploded and reality tv is one of those things where <laughs> we don't get a lot of respect for working on it but it is so much fun to do and yeah i i really love editing and i really love editing reality tv so yeah well speaking of your love of editing you know that they often say that a screenwriter writes a movie a director then 
tries to implement that. And the movie becomes a massive team project. And uh, there's everybody, costume designers, set designers, everybody's weighing in. And then all of that lands on your desk, lands on an editor's desk. What A lot of what makes a television show or a film happen happens in the editing room, whether it's a reality show or whether it is a, uh, you know, a, a soap opera or, or, or a regular feature film. So tell us about the notion of being an editor and, and what kind of feelings it gives you and how you, you know, cooperate with a director and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, Stanley Kubrick has some famous quotes about how editing is his favorite part of the process. And I think Hitchcock said it was, you know, everything else that you do is just a lead up into the editing process. I think Tarantino said something, things like that. Yeah, for sure. Editors, you know, it's one of those things where editors are supposed to be invisible. You're not supposed to feel the editor's hands. So the personality of an editor is they feel like they're contributing a lot to the final process. Most people don't see what they're doing and they don't appreciate it. So they're kind of, a lot of editors have chips on their shoulders, you know, um, <laughs> we, we spend a lot of time in a, in a, in a room by ourselves and sometimes you're contributing a lot to the final product and the, the rest of the team can appreciate it but yeah people outside don't really understand what editing is or how it works especially with reality tv i think there's a lot of unknown i think most people would be surprised about how much time and effort it takes to build an episode yeah i think it really is i have done tiny bits of editing uh, here and there we did a show, which I think you would have been perfect for. At the high school, in my drama class, for about five years, I did a show like Modeled on the Office, the TV sitcom. And that's, of course, like a reality show, except that it's, it's a sitcom slash reality show. So what we did is we did one that was like the high school or something like that. And what we did is we did a bunch of relationships and then we would do scenes and we'd try to develop the relationships. And sometimes they'd be, uh, you know, uh, friends who became, uh, you know, involved or other times they'd be, you know, uh, students angry at the teacher and so on. And we would try to develop them. The kids really got into it. And I thought it was a good way to, to show storytelling in a high school drama class because they all became involved. And then they'd all have opinions about how it should go. And of course, I was fascinated by this. But then inevitably, and we only have so many hours per week over so many weeks in a school year. And, you know, a lot of at the beginning of learning dr dramatic techniques and so on. And by the end, you'd have to put it together fast. It became a little bit hard. But having said that, I think it's a great way to learn about storytelling. You know? Yeah. I Yeah, that's, the, I, I, first of all, I would love to see that show. I think that sounds brilliant. Um, yeah, there's something about editing that's inherently satisfying. And I don't know what it is. People that just, you know, comes editing for the first time really, a lot of times get really excited about it because there's something exciting about putting two shots together and something new is created. And so, yeah, it's, I, I would encourage everyone to just play around with editing if you've got iMovie or whatever, because it is just super fun. If you're putting together videos of your kids or whatever, you're going to find some enjoyment in the editing process. Um, but yeah, you know, it's amazing. I'll, I'll go onto a show and it'll be, you know, a game show and I'll be like, well, this is going to be an easy show. It's going to be, you know, just pushing the buttons. And, you know, it's not like these other shows where I'm having to worry about story and blah, blah, blah. But every time I think that it's, I'm always wrong because even in a game show, you're telling a story, you know, who are these people? Why are they there? You know, why do they need the money or whatever it is? Yeah. It really, editing is 
And, you know, a lot of people hear editing, they think of like editing copy where you're kind of scratching out words or condensing, but editing in reality TV is, is a building process. You're building a story out of different pieces. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, let's talk about some of the shows um, that you've worked on. I, I, one of that comes up is Joe Millionaire. Maybe you could tell us about some of your experiences on that, maybe highlights of some of these shows that, that you recall. So I, was, I figured maybe we could start with Joe Millionaire. Yeah. I mean, I, I was so eager to become an editor when I was at Buna Murray, you know, and especially back then, you really had to pay your dues. Most People had to be like an associate editor for like six years before you get moved up to being an editor. And I was just a dumb kid who was super eager and was just pushing so hard to be an editor. I was pushing my boss to, you know, can you make me an editor? And he's like, you got to pay your dues, dude. He's like, you know, your, your reach outweighs your grasp, you know, and that just frustrated me more. It just made me want it. So I would spend all of my, you know, I'd spend all my free time, time after work going to editors saying, hey, can I... Can I cut a scene for you? Can I help you cut your episode? Can I do all this stuff? And I would do it and nobody would know that I, or sometimes they would know, but a lot of times I would cut a scene and whoever was watching it just assumed it was the editor who, who did it. So I would get really a good sense of how I was doing based on the notes that would come back because they don't know it's me, but I'm able to like kind of see how, how I'm doing. But I, yeah, again, I'm just learning a lot and just cutting scenes like crazy staying all night to cut this scene or that scene. And I finally convinced them to give me an editor credit or, you know, give me an episode on, on real, the real world Vegas. Um, so I got that first editor credit and right around that time, they were, there was this show Joe Millionaire that was trying to meet a really aggressive air date. So they had just no time to put together all these episodes. So they were, they were looking for it. They were desperate looking for editors. And so I gave them a resume with my only editor credit. And I believe I lied and padded it out with some other stuff. I don't even remember what I put on there, but not thinking that they would ever hire me because I had only done one thing, but, um, you know, they were just desperate enough and, and they, they just saw my credits and they called me and they said, I think I was making like $600 a week at the time. And they said, you know, how much are you making? And, and I said, well, I'm making about 2000 a week. And they said, well, how about 2,500? You know? <laughs> I was like, Okay. All right. Yeah. I, it just, it blew my mind. You know, I couldn't believe it that they were hiring me. And so, but what it meant was that I was going to have to step away from this company, Peter Murray, that I really had got my start there and never had worked anywhere else. And just, I was scared to leave because they did tell me that, you know, Hey, if you leave, you can't come back. Mm. So I was, I was nervous about taking the Joe Millionaire job. I thought maybe it was a smarter thing to stay at at Buna Murray, try to get some more editor credits and then wait for another opportunity to come. But I just, something told me that I have to take this opportunity. And yeah, I was so afraid I was going to be fired. I went to a restaurant, got a, an application because I was pretty sure I was going to get fired from Joe Millionaire and I didn't have a job. And so I was like, you know, I still have that application though to remind <laughs> me of, of that moment. And so then, yeah, I started on Joe Millionaire. It was this show that's kind of a takeoff on The Bachelor. The Bachelor had been on for a couple seasons. Joe Millionaire is a prank show. They just brought it back actually recently. They did a new version of it. But, but the idea is that there's a guy, Evan, you know, in this case, his name was Evan Marriott. And we presented to, you know, it's a dating scenario where there's all these women and one guy and, you know, he's eliminating a girl every week. The girls sort of told that he's a multimillionaire and they're being flown to this chateau in, in France. And what they don't know is that he's just a construction worker and he has like $10 to his name. And so <laughs> the, the idea was that, you know, and there was a lot of these prank shows at that time. So yeah, you know, the idea was like the audience knows that he's not a millionaire and you're watching the girls and how they kind of 
who's in it for love and who's in it for money was basically the idea. And the show became like crazy successful. It was like 40 million viewers or something, something like today that we would just would be like crazy numbers. But yeah, I got in there and I was only 22 years old in my first week on Joe Millionaire. And I had bought glasses with fake prescription because I thought that made, look, made me look older. And I told <laughs> everybody I was 27, which is still really young. Yeah. Um, so, but, and then my, in my first week, the editor next to me got fired. So I was like, oh, I'm, I'm out. You know, they're, they're going to they're gonna fire me. And so I just lucked out. Again, people helping me. Um, someone named Liz Boston, who's the showrunner, she said I didn't suck, you know. And so she she believed in me. And, you know, they ended up relying on me a lot for those episodes. And, you know, again, we were delivering them the, the day that they aired. So it was a really, really, really crazy schedule working 30 hours in a row. And you know, but it was so exciting. I was just like over the moon. I couldn't believe it. I, w- I just wanted to be an editor, you know? Yeah. And so to do this and to be working with the composers, I was able to, I had ideas for music and I was able to call the composers and they would come up with it and they would give it back to me and I would cut it into the scene. And it was like, I, was, I had never been able to do that before. Yeah. So you were given a lot more responsibility with the millionaire job and, and that kind of, that helps you grow as, a, as an artist, as an editor as well. Yeah. And as soon as they, they did a, ultimately find out that I was 22 <laughs> and they did end up finding out that my resume was padded too. But it was at, at that point, they're like, well, we like them. So we don't, we don't care again. Yeah. Lucky as hell that they didn't just get rid of me when they found that out. But yeah, you know, facts showbiz is filled with these stories about guys, you know, like, well, I was only 19, but I pretended I was 26 or whatever. I mean, this this is this is the you know grist for the mill for showbiz stories. You know, it really is. So you followed in a lot of great footsteps there. One of the reality shows you've worked on, it looks like, is the Trading Spouses, which I've seen, and I think Christine and I have both seen this actually. And this is one where a mom or a dad from one family goes over and switches with another family, and there is inevitably a lot of fireworks that happen in this process. What was it like working on that one? Oh yeah. That was- was one of my favorite experiences ever. Um, I had, you know, after Joe Millionaire, I was kind of working at this company, Rocket Science, doing shows for them. And I was working up and I was kind of becoming senior editor. And then I became a producer editor kind of person. And so, yeah, I was a producer editor on Trading Spouses. And again, at that time, I was only 24 years old. But um, so again, a, a lot of arrogance, a lot of thinking that I knew everything, but I had so much fun on that show. And, 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 you know, it, a lot of people don't know this, but the God Warrior, it's a famous like internet clip, meme, whatever, of one of our mothers just went crazy and, and started talking about psychics and, you know, she's not a Christian. And it's this famous like reality TV clip that came from Trading Spouses. So I'm always proud of that, that I could say that I worked on that. But uh, it was it was so much fun working on that show. Yeah, the idea for the show is two mothers from two completely different lives switch places and you know it, the owner of the company was a french guy who's a child actor and he wanted it to be like a french film and we were doing it for fox which is not very french filmy but um <laughs> it was so so much fun doing that kind of being the person in between the french film guy and the fox kind of aesthetic the thing I'll say about Fox is that they would allow anything. 
you, they would allow us to do anything. We, we would have an act where we had no dialogue and just music, you know, and just you're watching this whole scene take place. And it's, you know, a, a, this woman goes into town and there's these looks and, you know, it's the emotion and, you know, um, they would let us get away with anything if the numbers were good, you know, if, yeah. if the ratings were good. So, and again, l- learning so much during that time and, and learning how to tell a more sophisticated story. When I first started, I was telling a story of more like black and white characters, you know, good and bad. And then by the time we had got to our like third season, we were doing, well, there's good and bad in, in each one. And we'll kind of play with that and see this, this person, you know, is coming from a really wealthy family and they're really well off and they have to learn something about living more modestly. And then, you know, maybe the other mother has something that she has to learn. Um, so it was just, it, it was really fun story-wise. I found it a pretty interesting show. It's one of the reality shows that I watched that I kind of, uh, I really liked. I, I, I got into it. It was, it was fun to watch. You also worked on The Real Housewives of Orange County. I know there's been uh, a number of these Real Housewives kind of shows. Tell us about The Real Housewives of Orange County. Yeah, Real Housewives. I, I mean, again, a show that I really, really, really loved working on and when I was in Orange County, I was kind of, when I was living there, I, I felt, I, I always wanted to kind of make a documentary about that world, about the world of Newport Beach, because again, it was so different than how I grew up. And it was, I was kind of like seeing this wealthy lifestyle that I'd never seen before. And I found it really entertaining. And yeah, Real Houses of Orange County is what we call a docu-soap or a docu-series where you're following people's lives. And, you know, people always ask, like with reality TV, Oh, it's all fake. I know it's all fake. You know, that's, that's pretty consistent as people actually tell you, Oh, I know it's fake. Don't even try to tell me it's real. Cause I know reality TV is fake and it's true. There's a range. So you, know, so you have a show like real world, which is like as pure and real as you can get. And then, you know, something else that is heavily produced, heavily scripted. And uh, then there's a whole bunch of shows that kind of fall between those two things. Uh, most of the time you're trying to, you don't try to fake things. You don't try to manipulate things. You don't, you, you set out to make it as real as you possibly can. Um, but sometimes a lot of times because of budget or you, sometimes you have to like push things along or, you know, goose things up a little bit, either in production or in post. Yeah. So there is an element that's not, maybe not so real, but Orange County, Real Hustles of Orange County is very, I would say very real. The network Bravo really wants to, really follow their real lives and follow what's really going on with them. And, you know, sometimes we'll have a cast member that, that has a lot of personal turmoil and they're trying to hide it from the cameras and they want to present something else. And so the network is always encouraging us to really, no, no, no. We want to see the real, what the, what she's really going through. She can't just hide it. We got to, we got to encourage, she's got to tell us what's going on with her. You know, that's why she's here. So, um, you know, people might look at a, a Real Housewives franchise and go, oh, it's all fake. You know, maybe a producer comes in and tells them to yell at each other. But that doesn't happen, at least on that show. You know, people huh. you know, people on camera try to produce themselves or try to look a certain way on television. And, you know, there's that. But really, truly, the effort is for it to be as, as real as possible. Okay. Well, that, that gives me some insight, too. And I'm glad to hear that from somebody on the inside, as it were, um, you know, how that actually works. Apropos that, um, you also worked on a show, Kitchen Nightmares. Uh, I've never seen that one, but I was a cook for eight years. Tell us about Kitchen Nightmares. Yeah, Kitchen Nightmares is a Gordon Ramsay show. He's done 
Oh yeah. A okay. ton of them. I, I think I've done three Gordon Ramsay shows, but he's hilarious. He's, he's really, really, really a funny person. And I wish we didn't have to bleep him all the time because you would see how, how funny he is. But yeah, they, we were basically adapting it from a, there was a UK version of kitchen nightmares and then we, they brought it over to the U S and we were trying to adjust it for an American audience. And yeah, I really enjoyed that. Uh, you know, I was talking about how real reality shows are. There's this thing called Frankenbiting, which is basically piecing together words from different places to build a new sentence. So, you know, if I want Doug to say, I had a great morning this morning, and he never says anything like that, I can search through his interviews and find him saying, I had, and then find somewhere else where he said, a great, and then find somewhere else where he said morning, and I piece it together and I've created a sentence that the person never said, but because of whatever we're going through in post to tell the story, we need them to say the specific thing. So sometimes that can be um, really manipulating somebody to say something that we never say for the sake of drama or, or, or whatever. And this is where I think people really can criticize reality TV for being fake is, is the Frankenbiting process. But a lot of times you're Frankenbiting just to try to explain something that just wasn't explained very well or you know, real life is very chaotic. And so our job as editors in reality TV is to make a really clear, coherent story. And sometimes just doing that, forget about how entertaining it is, is very challenging. So we just want to tell a really clear story. And sometimes we have to piece together words, you know, to make that happen. And then we're also trying to make the best show possible. We're trying to find the best moments and trying to find a way to build to those moments. Yeah, I'm glad you explained that because it also gives us, you know, nowadays with um, a lot of social media uh, kind of stuff that's going on, uh, you know, we we wonder about how they're doing that in terms of, you know, propaganda and the like. And, um, you know, we know it's possible to uh, to make somebody, some politician look like he's saying this particular thing when he didn't. But the way you've explained it, it's interesting. I also appreciate that in the interview, you said, let's go back and let me re-explain that. And it, be, it'll make it that much easier for us to edit because even on paper, I'll be able to go, this is what Sachs was meaning to say. And I can then, you know, take that and then we can ignore this other part. But it, it is good to be able to be specific about that kind of stuff. And uh, anyway, I appreciate that. Also, you'd be interested to know. When I interviewed Jessica Morcel about how she puts together designs, she talked about, I think, Frankenforming. She takes like pieces of different designs and then pieces them together in a brand new thing. And I see that as a viable form of artistic expression because you're still picking things out of the universe and then you're sort of forming them into something else. And you can acknowledge where you got them and it still can be totally honest. It's just that, look what I've come up with, you know? Right. Anyway, that's an interesting idea. That is very interesting that, that, that she would be doing a similar thing with a completely different medium, but that makes sense to me. Yeah. Piecing together different things from different places to create a new new garment or, or outfit or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. Now, um, I know, um, you know, you've, you've worked on, you've worked now for uh, about 20 some years as an editor, something like that. Well, I got my first editor credit in 2002. So yeah, that would be yeah. 20, 20 years. years. Yeah. That's great, Sachs. But now you're also getting into what's called development in television. 
You've mentioned that you're, you've done some work in, for ABC, for the USA Network, VH, VH1, and E. TV development is, is one of those words that a lot of people wonder about. Uh, what does it do? You know, but it involves writing, producing, talking to directors and uh, you know, money folks, etc. Tell us what you've done in television development and it, would you like to expand in that direction? Television development is the process of developing ideas for reality shows and then pitching those ideas to different networks um, and sometimes to different production companies. So as an editor in television development, I, so I worked at a company for a few years where my whole job was just building these sales tapes, basically. The company would have an idea for a show and they would come to me with some voiceover. Sometimes they would just come with voiceover and I've got to go find images and audio to represent the idea that they're trying to sell. So I'm having to pull, and it never airs. So I'm having to pull footage from all over the place on online and TV shows and movies and just wherever I can find images that represent the idea that they're trying to sell. So it creatively, it's a, it's a huge challenge, um, but it's very fun to do too. And especially getting to work with material that, you know, normally you, you can't work with because you can't, you would have to clear, you know, a scene from a movie if you wanted to, to re-edit it or whatever. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a challenge to try to bring to life an idea, you know, that they, that they have in their minds and you're kind of bringing it to life. And the other interesting thing about it is, you know, normally when I'm editing a reality show, I, I'm at the end of the process, you know, they've already done pre-production, they've already done production, and I'm in post. So that's the last part of the process, but this is, you know, at the very, very, very beginning of the process. And so there were shows where, you know, someone had an idea, we put together a, a sales tape and they took it out, they pitched it, and then it would get picked up and then I would work on the series. So I would be able to see it, you know, from the very beginning all the way to the very end. And that was something that I didn't really get to do before, but it was, again, a great learning experience and it was a lot of fun. Do you, do you see yourself um, in, say, 10 or more years uh, heading more in the direction of being a producer rather than an editor? Or are you going to be, uh, you see yourself, I love editing and I want to stick with it or a combination? A lot of editors want to transition out of editing into producing. And I've done a little bit of producing. And some people do both producing and editing. That's called predating, you know, being a predator. And so I've, if the opportunity comes up, I do enjoy being a producer. But I don't see myself wanting to go over to that fully because a lot of producing is, you know, things that I... I'm not necessarily interested in like budgets, a lot of non-creative things and, you know, trying to manage people and trying to manage a schedule and, you know, a lot of things that come with producing and producer has to do everything. And I have much more fun when I'm just kind of editing and um, yeah. I, I enjoy that so much. And, and again, I'll take up the opportunity to produce something if it, if it comes along, but I'm not trying to move in that direction. I'd be happy just editing. <laughs> For the rest of yeah, that's great to hear. I've had the experience, obviously, not done very much editing, but, you know, just being in, in the, my intensive film school experience, so forth, of getting lost and forgetting what time it was when I was in an editing room. And suddenly hours would go by and I'd realize, geez, three hours has passed. I haven't even gotten up to take a wee. And here it is. I'm still happily editing along. Do you have this experience a lot? Oh, yeah. Sometimes three days pass and you're like, wait. <laughs> what happened? Um, I feel like the best representation of an editor in TV or film is Paul Giamatti on 30 Rock. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but 
they got that so right. It's like a dark room. Everyone's eating these huge sandwiches, you know, and just editors are, have awkward personalities and are not necessarily the most social. If I, if there's going to be a rap party for a show, I know that I'm pretty much going to be the only editor there because editors are very antisocial. Um, and yeah, a lot of editors have hard time communicating. So yeah, you, you're in a room so much and you're not, you're by yourself, you're not communicating. And then suddenly you've got to uh, interact with people and it just comes out a little awkward sometimes. Well, that's, that's an interesting thing. And, um, you know, as we, as we come toward an end here, I, I have to ask you, um, there you were, you know, 17 year old sax, you know, uh, learning from Tom Wolski and, uh, you had done all kinds of stage work by then. And here you were finding it. What ideas or thoughts might you have for some, somebody, if you circled back 25 years and there you are in high school, what would you tell to a kid nowadays if they were interested in video editing? What would you say? Where should he go to school? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, my advice to a young person trying to get into television or trying to develop skills as an editor or anything in that kind of world is to just, you know, practice, use your iPhone, shoot stuff, edit it together have fun with it. And, you know, there, there's a million possibilities and a million ways. There's no YouTube when I was in high school. So you can put your stuff out there. You can get feedback on your work. You can really do anything. And, you know, that, that's, a, that's a very exciting thing. So I would, I would recommend that people shoot their own stuff, edit your own stuff and um, put it out there in the world, put it on social media and, you know, see what kind of feedback you get. We're at a place right now. It, it used to be that you had to live in Los Angeles to work in in the industry and now because of the pandemic and I don't know how everything's still remote people are still working remotely and so you can really be anywhere in the world the industry is about relationships though it's almost more important to build stronger relationships than to than your talent as an editor or whatever you you know people hire you because they enjoyed working with you that hopefully they thought you were good <laughs> and they enjoyed working with you and if you're a pain in the ass um, which I definitely was for many years, <laughs> then, you know, it's, it's people want to work with someone that is easy to work with, that they enjoy working with. I think, yeah, just creating good relationships with people. That's what's going to help you continue to get work. I think the most important part of editing is, you know, cutting with your gut and really being in touch with your own instincts and trusting your instincts and noticing how you feel the first time you see the footage and what you react to and what you thought was funny the first time you saw it and just as you're putting together really being in touch with your gut and and cut with your gut and just kind of move from that place and and you, you know it's it's not always going to work out but it's going to work out a lot better than if you're trying to figure out how it's supposed to go and you're supposed to know how to do it just you know trust your instincts that's my advice well, that, that all makes sense to me. Before I sign off and or come to an ending, I want to ask, is there any other shows you want to mention? I've noticed here Vanderpump Rules. Is that something that has any particular stories? Do you want to talk about that for a moment? I love working on Vanderpump Rules. It's been so much fun. It's one of those shows that I think, you know, for people who love it, they really love it. And so it's been a, a fun show to to be a part of and watch how's it, how it's evolved. And, um, you know, I've always considered it to be a, a comedy. Something I learned from you and Tracy, Doug, was that, you know, sometimes the character is taking the situation seriously and that's what makes it funny. And I definitely feel that way about Vanderpump Rules. We have the best villains. You know, we have a, Kristen is, is a great villain. Jax is a great villain. These are, Jax is a person who can, for some reason, is a pathological liar and just can't help himself, you know? And so one of my favorite 
kind of themes of Vanderpump Rules is Jack's getting stuck in a lie. He just always manages to, to trap himself in a bad situation. And then it you know, comes out that he was lying. Uh, Kristen is a great villain. She's always trying to stir things up. And a person like Kristen, who takes life so seriously, you know, the more serious that she takes her t-shirt line or whatever, the funnier it is for us as an audience, you know? So I, I that's one of my favorite shows because of the, because of how funny I think that that show is. Yeah. There's one other thing I wanted to say though. Please. I don't know where this goes, but I just wanted to explain that, you know, in reality TV, the process of putting together an episode starts with a story department and they take uh, notes from the field. There's things called hot sheets, which is a breakdown of, you know, basically what happened during that day of shooting. And so a story team in post-production takes those notes and starts to put together the footage and starts to build string outs. And they're trying to map out character arcs for an entire season for each character. And they're trying to figure out how each episode fits in the arc for each character. And, you know, as an editor, we receive this string out, which is basically a story department putting together a scene and uh, then handing over that scene to the editor. And then our process starts of, of kind of like building that scene for anyone that was interested in how, how that works. I don't know if I explained that right. That's great. I really like the aspects of this interview and that you go, wait, let's stop. Let's go back to there because you're thinking like an editor. Mm -hmm. You're thinking, no, let's click, click. Okay. going to cut that. We're going to put this and move it up there. I can see that happening in the interview. So that's pretty neat for me. (laughs) I want to thank you, Saxino, for being with us. I know that next week, I believe you will be turning uh, 42. Is that correct? That's correct. Wow. Oh my God. That's great. You were because you and I, you have a birthday, I think, on May 13th. Is that right? You're May 20th? Yeah, May 20th. So I'm a week after you. Yeah. And you're, are you 43 now? Or? Uh, I'll be, yeah, I'll be 39. Actually, oh, actually. No, yeah, actually I'm going to be 70 this year. So, wow. but, uh, yeah. So, so I want to say thanks a ton, Sachs, for being on our show. Um, we've learned a lot about video editing. And we've also learned about uh, the life of uh, somebody who's really been an artist since I first met you when I believe you were two or three and came to a show that we did. Um, I think it was National Velveeta. I think you were two years old. And you came and saw that at Crown Hall with your mom. I was in a dress, right? What's that? Wasn't I in a dress? I think you were wearing a a skirt or something. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. You, you were wearing something of, of very interesting, and I thought to myself, that guy's going to be an artist. That's what I thought right away. So wow. anyway, it's been, it's been, you've had a very interesting uh, career and life, and um, I've loved being, uh, you know, being on the periphery and watching it. So thanks for being with Snap Session, Sax. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for all that you did for me growing up. I mean, you taught me math. And you taught me comedy and you taught me so much else. So thank you on behalf of all the people that you helped. I I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Great. And before we leave, I am literally giving you a Vulcan shoulder. Oh, never (laughs) over. (laughs) So, Sax, great to have you on Snap Sessions. Thanks to our artists, activists of the show. Video editor, Sax Eno. Our production team includes tech meister Marshall Brown, jack-of-all-trades Ken Krause, writer-interviewer Doug Nunn, and our logo designer Daniel Stieglitz. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. 
Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com and also the link in our show notes.